Chapter 1. The Apostles' Creed and Creedalism It has become popular in recent years for churches to profess that they are creedless and that their membership is an open and living one. One sect has made heavy use of the phrase, No creed but Christ. Every denial of creedalism is either based on hypocrisy or on ignorance. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, I believe. A creed is any formula or confession of faith by the members of a church. There is no church that does not require some form of assent as a condition of membership, if nothing more than a desire to join a particular church. Implicit in every such assent is a creed. Thus, a community church which simply asks prospective members if they wish to join has implicit in its question in prior sessions with these catechisms a denial of Orthodox Christianity and insistence on the individual's right to believe as he wills as long as he is sincerely dedicated to human betterment and a general assent to the tenets of humanism. This particular church's vaunted creedlessness is in practice a hard and intolerant dogmatism savagely hostile to Christian creedalism in the name of humanistic creedalism. A creed is more than a church's standard. In most cases, a church's standard involves a far more intensive affirmation than does the creed. The requirements of the clergy, church officers, and church law may be far more detailed and far more extensive and intensive than a creed permits. But the creed is the door to the house of faith. It is the minimal statement of belief. And it is personal. I believe credo. It is more than the church's faith. It is the believer's faith. A congregation recites or sings it, but they cannot say, we believe, but I believe. The creed is the door to the house of faith, and it is intensely personal. The individual affirms every article of the creed, from God as the Father Almighty and the Creator, to the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body, as his personal faith. It is this point which separates Western Christianity from the Eastern Church. The first personal plural, we, is the Greek usage. The Western churches have followed the Latin formula, I believe. Significantly, Latin Christianity and the Western churches have seen a long series of reforms to the present day. Many summons to the faithful or by the faithful to return to the faith, because the faith of the believer rather than the faith of the church has had confessional priority. The Apostles' Creed, of course, not a creed written by the Apostles, but an early anti-Nicene confession of faith summarizing the apostolic preaching. Laith has observed that the creed does have a legitimate claim to its title on the basis of the fact that all of its articles are to be found in the theological formulas that were current around A.D. 100. Schaff wrote, all the facts and doctrine which it contains are in entire agreement with the New Testament. The rationalistic opposition to the Apostles' Creed and its use in the churches is therefore an indirect attack upon the New Testament itself. It is of interest to contrast various texts of the Apostles' Creed. The old Roman form is given by Rufinius in Latin around A.D. 390 and by Marcellus in Greek around 336 to 341. I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, flesh. The received form, or Textus Receptus, was adopted around 700. 
It reads with the additions to the old Roman form added by Schaff in parentheses to indicate them. I believe in God the Father Almighty, in parentheses, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was, parentheses, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, parentheses, suffered, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, parentheses, dead, and buried, in parentheses, he ascended into hell, Hades. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of, parentheses, God, the Father, parentheses, Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, parentheses, I believe, in the Holy Ghost, the Holy, parentheses, Catholic, Church, parentheses, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, parentheses, flesh, parentheses, and the life everlasting. An early English form of the creed, dated well before the Norman Conquest and in official church use, is of considerable interest in that the translation reflects a clear understanding of some articles, such as the communion of saints. Narrator's note, the creed is once again listed below, however the spelling is quite different, such that it appears some sort of Old English spelling, and I don't know how to pronounce all of those uh, words spelled that way. The Apostles' Creed is unlike all other creeds of other religions, whether humanist, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, or otherwise. The faith of all other religions is in a body of ideas or claims concerning reality. It may be a belief in the ultimacy of man or the ultimacy of nothingness in the office of man, Muhammad as prophet, or an ultimate dualism or monism, but in any event, it demands a belief in certain ideas or claims. The Apostles' Creed is radically different. It offers a synopsis of history created by God, the Father Almighty, requiring salvation by Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, who entered, lived, died, and was resurrected in history, and is now the Lord and Judge of history. His holy congregation is operative in history, which culminates in the general resurrection and everlasting life. The whole creed, therefore, is a declaration concerning history. Nothing, then, can be more alien to the creed and to biblical faith than the dialectical separation of faith and history. To contrast the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history is to talk the language of paganism, not of Christianity. To affirm the inspiration of the Bible, but to deny its historical infallibility, is to renounce the Bible for dialecticism. Biblical Christianity is a declaration concerning what God has done in history, but it also makes clear that he is the creator, the transcendental, ontological, and triune God who cannot be reduced to history. He is its maker. Implicit in this declaration that God the Father Almighty is maker of heaven and earth is the claim of God to be the lawgiver, determiner, and sustainer of heaven and earth and all of history. He is its maker, and it is totally subject, therefore, to him. An assertion of the doctrine of creation is also an assertion of the doctrine of sovereignty and of the eternal decree of predestination. Not only a theology, but an eschatology, or doctrine of last things, which renounces history or sees it as defeat, is faithless to Christianity. God is maker of heaven and earth, not Satan. History culminates in God's plan and triumph, not in Satan's victory. To the extent that any eschatology involves the victory of evil in history, to that extent it surrenders and retreats from history. Currently, one of the major sins besetting evangelical Christianity is eschatology which denies the evangel and denies history. 
the creed thus has vast implications concerning history because of its declaration that God is the creator of all things. This declaration immediately makes God the source of all ethics, of all morality, and of all law. In all non-Christian systems, the source of ethics and of law is the state. It is the polis, the empire, or the kingdom. There is no understanding the gulf between Aristotle and Plato, for example, and Christianity apart from this fact, and the gulf cannot be legitimately bridged. Either God is the true source of morality and law, or the state is. If God is the true source, then the word of God must be hearkened to by church, state, school, and every sphere of life as the one authoritative source of morality and law. As institutions and orders declare, they must do it ministerially, as administrators under God. The word of God therefore speaks to every sphere, including church and state, and the word of God is over the church and corrects and disciplines the church. It is significant and inescapable that as the early church formulated the creeds, the councils that announced the creeds also announced canons or canon law to govern the church and believers and to declare God's law to the state. It was impossible for creedalism to develop without a parallel development of canon law. As the creeds progressively formulated the reality of God's sovereign power and Christ's role as priest, prophet, and king over man and history, the councils simultaneously brought life under the canons of the faith, under biblical law and morality. The vitality and relevance of canon law has declined as biblical creedalism has declined, and as status law and ethics have progressively governed the church. Tertullian ridiculed the political source of law in Rome. In effect, it made men ultimate gods, in that not only did the Senate create laws, it also created gods. To say a word about the origin of laws and the kind to which we now refer, there was an old decree that no god should be consecrated by the emperor till first approved by the Senate. Marcus Aemilius had experience of this in reference to his god, Albernus. And this too makes for our case that among you divinity is allotted at the judgment of human beings. Unless gods give satisfaction to men, there will be no deification for them. The god will have to propitiate the man. True law, it was held, came from the triune god, and its claims are universal. All men know the law, because at creation it was inscribed on the tables of man's heart, and thus all men are subjects of the law and rebel in terms of it. Irenaeus declared that the Ten Commandments simply restated what creation had originally implanted. They, the Jews, had therefore a law, a course of discipline, and a prophecy of future things. For God, at the first indeed, warning them by means of natural precepts, which from the beginning he had implanted in mankind, that is, by means of the Decalogue, which, if anyone does not observe, he has no salvation, did then demand nothing more of them. Christianity not only formulated a canon law, but in terms of Christian faith, it reformulated civil law. As a result, as Percival has noted, canon law and civil law, as the West knows it, had their rise at about the same period. Because God is the creator, he is also the redeemer. Schaff's observations here are especially pertinent. As to creation, Irenaeus and Tertullian most firmly rejected the hylozoic and demiurgic views of paganism and Gnosticism, which taught, according to the book of Genesis, that God made the world, including matter, not, of course, out of any material, but out of nothing, or to express it positively, out of his free, almighty will, by his word. 
This free will of God, a will of love, is the supreme, absolutely unconditional, and all-conditioning cause and final reason of all existence, precluding every idea of physical force or of emanation. Every creature, since it proceeds from the good and holy God, is in itself, as to its essence, good. Evil, therefore, is not an original and substantial entity, but a corruption of nature, and hence can be destroyed by the power of redemption. Without a correct doctrine of creation, there can be no true doctrine of redemption, as all the Gnostic systems show. The last sentence is particularly relevant. All the early creeds of the church begin by declaring God to be the creator. This is the starting point of all that follows. The creed begins, I believe, but as we have seen, it is not an affirmation of certain ideas or concepts, but an assent to history as God created it, redeems it, and governs it. Non-biblical creedalism is active. It involves the individual's decision concerning a set of ideas and concepts. Biblical creedalism is an assent to God's creation, redemption, and government. It is passive because it affirms an act of redemption by the triune God, of which man is simply the recipient by grace. But this passivity is the ground of true activity. Man under God moves now in terms of true law, in terms of the canon of Scripture, to exercise dominion over the earth in the name of the triune God. Christian creedalism is thus basic to Western activism, constitutionalism, and hope concerning history.